You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's one of Toronto's oldest landmarks. For over 200 years, it has watched the city's history unfold, from the burning of York in the War of 1812, to the city's first electric lights, to the building of the CN Tower. Yet most who reside, work, and play there will live their lives without ever knowing of its existence, or of the stories it has to tell. The Gibraltar Point Lighthouse stands alone in a secluded area of Centre Island, one of 15 small islands located just offshore of downtown Toronto in the cool waters of Lake Ontario. At 82 feet tall, the stone tower barely clears some of the trees that surround it, and the beacon which, at one time, could be seen for over 30 miles away, now sits mostly dark and forgotten, replaced long ago by smaller, automated lights that need no keeper. People who visit the island to lounge on its sandy beaches, wander the manicured gardens, or bike the tree-lined avenues, are often taken by surprise when they stumble upon a 19th-century lighthouse at the end of a short gravel path, half-hidden in the brush. They're even more surprised when they approach the structure, read the plaque by the door, and learn that the lighthouse has a dark and potentially haunted history. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. And I'm thrilled to tell you that Fireside Canada is back for a third season. Thank you to everyone who donated, wrote in, and gave the show a positive review. It's great to hear all the interest and positive feedback, and I appreciate the support. Now, the third season officially launches in late November. Listen to the end of this episode to find out exactly when. But tonight, we're starting off right with a special Halloween episode on what has been called both Toronto's oldest cold case and its most enduring ghost story. It's been the subject of study of countless writers, reporters, psychics, ghost hunters, and historians, and is at once a murder mystery, a ghost story, and a work of Canadian Gothic. It deftly combines historical fact, rumor, and speculation to tell a story that has entertained generations of eager listeners about a time when what is now Canada's largest city was nothing more than a small, rough-hewn town of 700 people, and a lonely stone lighthouse was the only significant light within a vast horizon of dark trees and dark water. So grab a drink, dim the lights, and let's explore the legends, lies, and lore of the Haunted Lighthouse of Gibraltar Point. Part 1. The Haunting of Gibraltar Point The lighthouse keeper stepped outside his home and gazed across the lake. Herring gulls were hovering in the wind. A distant steamer was chugging its way south to Niagara beneath a dreary sky. The horizon was smeared with rain, like a sheer curtain hanging from an iron rod. It was one of those days when the sun wouldn't set so much as bleed out behind the clouds. Its fading grey light would seep through the stratus and ripple on the water like a dying candle. Then night would come quickly. 
Swinging an empty brass oil can, the keeper walked across the grass to the neighboring building, an old ramshackle one-and-a-half-story cottage. Constructed over 70 years ago for the island's first keeper, the painted planks were stripped bare, the windows fogged by decades of storms and blowing sand. The structure was still sound, however, and it served as convenient storage for oil, wicks, and lanterns. As he approached the slanting door, he kicked something soft with his boot and looked down. A tattered ragdoll lay at his feet, seemingly forgotten by one of the island's children. There was a sudden, sharp knock from inside the old house, and he glanced up to see a shadow slip by the window. Damn kids, he thought. A few weeks back, he had caught two of them playing near the kerosene containers and had run them off. He had yelled after them to keep out, that it was dangerous. Evidently, they didn't listen. He pushed open the door and stood at the entrance, trying to look imposing. All right, he called out. It's getting dark. Anyone who's in here better get home quick. There was no reply. He added, less confidently, You're not supposed to be here. He walked slowly into the house, and the floor creaked under his weight. All was still and silent. Then came a second knock right above him, followed by a loud crash and the tinkling of glass. He rushed up the steps and peered into the attic. Gray strands of grimy cobwebs wafted in the gloom, and an old anchor light sulked in the corner. The floor was coated in a thick layer of dust, except for the center, where fragments of a shattered bottle sparkled in the shafts of light that shone through the holes in the roof. The jagged edges of the broken bottle top lay half-hidden in the shadows of an old trunk. Above it, two red, glowing eyes watched him from the darkness. He jumped back in surprise. The eyes flashed and disappeared, and he heard the sound of a sizable rat leap from the trunk and scamper away. The lighthouse keeper chuckled and scratched at his beard. Something about this old house always made him feel nervous. He went back downstairs, filled his oil can, and headed for the lighthouse, making a mental note to lay out some traps and put a new lock on the door. There were ninety wooden steps to the top of the lighthouse, and the sound of his footfalls echoed through the tower as he climbed. When he reached the ladder that led to the beacon, he stopped, but the sound of footsteps continued. They grew louder, closer, thump, thump thump. Then nothing. He called out a greeting and listened. He heard nothing but the wind. He stepped onto the first rung of the ladder, and the sound came again, the shuffle of old boots on wood. Thump. 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 He jumped back onto the landing and leaned over the spiral staircase. Nothing was there. He called out again, and, as if in answer, a piece of plaster fell from the wall near the bottom of the staircase and shattered, leaving a thin coat of white powder on one of the steps. He waited a few moments for the sound to come again, but the tower remained silent. He shrugged, then climbed up the ladder and through the hatch to the lantern room. The wind was blowing harder, whistling through the outer catwalk and slipping along the glass. From his vantage in the lighthouse, he could see the trees and tall grass in the eastern field bend and twist in the gale. Whitecaps rose up from the lake and crashed onto the southern shore. 
The lighthouse keeper replenished the oil and lit the lamps, then squinted at the light. He wondered how helpful the beacon would be to anyone unlucky enough to be out on the water that night. Setting down his empty can, he grabbed the crank handle at the bottom of the lamps and began to turn. The lighthouse beacon rotated by way of a clever mechanism that he had to wind every 14 hours. Attached to the crank was a drum, along with 75 feet of steel cable and a 700-pound weight. He used both his hands to wind the machine, listening to the cogs and links groan under the stress. Beneath the rhythmic ticking of the clockwork and the wail of the wind, he thought he heard a dull moaning coming from below. He reassured himself that it was only the sound of the wind driving up the wooden stairs of the tower, and took comfort knowing that, in a few more minutes, he would be back inside his home, eating his supper and enjoying the warmth of a well-stoked fire. When the weight was hoisted to its highest station and the crank stopped, he grabbed his oil can and slipped down the ladder. He ran down the stairs, eager to leave, but stopped at the step where the plaster had fallen. There, in the dying light from the small square window, was a footprint in the dust. Its toe pointed toward him, as if someone had followed him. But that was impossible. He would have seen them. The lighthouse was narrow, and there was nowhere to hide. He stepped over the footprint, continued downward, and went outside, then locked the lighthouse door. If someone had followed him and was now playing games, they'd regret it come morning. The evening passed peacefully as the lighthouse keeper and his family ate by candlelight. At one point, he looked sternly at his daughter and asked her if she had been playing in the storehouse. She shook her head and insisted she had not gone anywhere near the house since his warning three weeks ago. After the meal, the lighthouse keeper was relaxing in his chair and enjoying his pipe when his son, standing by the east window, turned to him and asked, Who is that in the lighthouse? The keeper jumped to his feet and crossed the room. What do you mean, he said. No one's there. Yes, there is, his son replied. Look. The keeper crouched near the window, and his eyes followed the child's pointed finger to the top of the lighthouse. The two beams of light were moving in their slow rotation. There was a flash as the lamplight passed over their house and revealed the dark silhouette of a man looking down at them from the gallery. The lighthouse keeper sprang to his feet and grabbed the lantern from the table. Stay inside, he said. Lock the door. At the lighthouse entrance, he craned his neck to see if he could spot any shadows in the lantern room. But there was nothing. He carefully placed the key inside the lock. But before he could turn it, a sudden flurry of heavy bangs hammered on the opposite side of the door, and he jumped back in surprise. The blows came harder and harder, rattling the wood and iron, until it seemed to the lighthouse keeper that the door would shatter. And then, all was quiet. The key, still sticking out from the lock, turned slowly. There was a moment of silence, then the door creaked open as if in invitation, and he peered inside. It was deathly quiet. With slow, calculated steps, he began to ascend the lighthouse, when an invisible force pushed past him, shoving his left shoulder into the wall. The spiral staircase creaked above him, followed by a heavy slam, like the sound of a body hitting the stairs. He bounded up the steps, rounded the center, and saw a vision so shocking it almost sent him tumbling backward. 
The thirteenth step was red with blood. Thick and fresh, it shone in the lantern light and streaked down the riser. The keeper turned and ran as a terrible, guttural moan echoed through the stairwell. It was a cry of anguish and suffering, more human than the wind could ever be, coming from everywhere and nowhere all at once. He could still hear the echoes as he ran out the door, still see in his mind the blood on the step as he rushed toward home and his family. He stopped when he saw a person standing near the children's swing set twenty feet ahead. He was about to call out to who he assumed was his wife, until it turned and shambled toward him. As it approached, the pale light from his flickering lantern outlined an armless, jawless figure shuffling in the sand. Its shoulders were wet patches of dark. The same moans the keeper had heard in the lighthouse echoed from the darkness below and behind its jutting teeth. The lighthouse keeper's blood ran cold, his vision narrowed, and he nearly collapsed with fear, but managed to turn around and run inside his home. Placing his shaking hands on the sill, he peered through the window, only to see that it was gone. The phantom, if that's what it was, had vanished in a flash of the beacon's light. In the morning, he found the lighthouse door hanging open, creaking softly in the wind. There was no trace of the blood he had seen on the stairs, but he avoided that step all the same. The tower was quiet and undisturbed, the clockwork still in motion, the beacon still turning gently on its base. He snuffed out the lamps, locked the door, and took a walk, past the old keeper's cottage, silent and dark, to the tool shed. He found an old iron shovel and carried it further west to a small, shallow pond. Letting instinct take over, he wandered through the brush until he came to a part of shoreline tucked away beneath the shadow of an old maple tree. There he began to dig. He wasn't sure why he chose that specific spot, what he was looking for, or what he might find, but his experience the night before had awakened in him a memory, and he was driven to see how deep it went. Two hours and four feet later, he had his answer, when his shovel dug up something more substantial than the sand and sludge he had piled near the tree. Grasping the muddied object between thumb and forefinger, he climbed out of the hole, knelt by the pond, and dipped it in the water, using his fingers to remove decades of grime from its surface. When he was finished, he held the remains of a yellowed jawbone in his hands, its three molars dripping water and glistening in the sun. With a silent prayer, the lighthouse keeper buried the bone once more, but this time away from the water and the shade of the tree, in a place where the sunlight and the glow of the lighthouse would find it. As he walked back, he thought of a story that his father told him when he was just a young boy, one long autumn evening when the rain fell hard on the roof and made the firelight flicker. It was a legend about the fate of the first man to care for the lighthouse, passed down for over 70 years from keeper to keeper. The memory of that night and that story came flooding back, sitting in that room by that fire with a storm raging outside and his father's shadow on the wall, listening to what he believed until today was just a story. Part 2. A Dark Story for a Dark Night John Paul Rademuller had been in the lantern room when two soldiers came down the path toward the lighthouse. 
He watched through the glass as they staggered across the sand and banged on the door of his clapboard house. He finished lighting the lamp, then stepped out onto the gallery. The air was sharp and cool, and though he was fifty feet above them, he could hear the dull thumping of the soldier's fist and the rattling of the shutters. One of the soldiers moved to the far window and peered inside. John leaned over the railing and whistled. The sound echoed from above, and the soldiers looked up. He waved a silent greeting, then disappeared inside. Moments later, the red door of the lighthouse swung open to reveal its keeper. At five foot ten inches, he was notably tall for the time, though old age had added a touch of silver to his brown hair and a bend to his bearing. He greeted the soldiers fondly but firmly, smiling as he studied their faces, the way their glossy eyes drifted between him, the house, and the beacon above. Their smiles were as rigid as the rifles slung over their shoulders, and there was liquor on their steaming breath. He knew these men, had sold to them before. They were stationed at the blockhouse to the north, away from the watchful eye of the fort's commander. Today was the second day of the new year, 1815, and he guessed that these men had been in a near constant state of celebration for the past 36 hours. Now the booze had run dry, and they had come back for more. After a moment's hesitation, he invited them to follow him to his cabin, but to leave their rifles at the door. The kitchen fire was burning hard and hot, filling the room with a golden glow. A collection of German steins, relics of the old country, glimmered on the mantel, and the carved figures on the drinkware seemed to dance in the flickering light. The lighthouse keeper took three off the wooden shelf and filled each with beer from a keg he kept on the table. One soldier stood by the door, while the other paced the floor, looking into the bedroom and up into the attic. Both took and drank their beer without a word. When they were finished, the first soldier grabbed the keg and headed for the door, muttering something about needing to get back to his post. The lighthouse keeper jumped to his feet to stop the soldier. That beer was his. He was happy to share it from time to time, but only with his guests, and only in his home. He gestured to the attic steps. He still had several bottles of whiskey upstairs, and they were welcome to them for the same price as last time. The soldier shoved the keg back onto the table and slipped his hand inside his coat. A moment later, he produced a half-drunk bottle of whiskey. A large chunk of ice sloshed inside and clinked against the glass as he shook it. The soldier spat. The supposed alcohol had frozen during the night's watch, and they didn't want any more of his worthless, watered-down whiskey. He tried to cheat them, and in return, they would take back their money, plus a little extra, along with his beer as payback for the insult. The lighthouse keeper stepped forward and, with a defiant shake of his head, shoved the soldier away and placed a defensive hand on the keg. He didn't notice the second man coming up behind him. The beer stein shattered when it hit the back of his skull and sent the lighthouse keeper tumbling to his knees. The first soldier's boot collided with his stomach before a pair of rough hands grabbed at his collar and jerked him to his feet. The half-frozen whiskey bottle slammed against his left temple, and for a moment the lighthouse keeper felt as if he were drowning. His vision blurred, movement slowed, all sound muffled except for the ringing in his ears. He punched the first soldier and wrenched free from the second, then stumbled to the door and out into the cold and dark. 
The sun had set, and the fog had begun to settle on the lake. But nearly six years as keeper had taught him how to find his way to the lighthouse in every condition, whether deafened by American cannons or blinded by snow, sleet, and now blood. He could hear the sound of the soldiers calling after him as he reached the red door, and the sound of boots on sand as he slammed it shut behind him. His desperate breathing echoed off the stone walls as he fumbled for the iron key and jammed it into the lock. But it was too late. The soldiers managed to pry the door from his clinging fingers and threw it open. The old man shrank and backed away, every step taking him further up the spiral stairs. The soldiers removed their shoulder belts, stretched them, and struck the thick buckles against their open palms. Dangling through their fingers, the heavy metal scraped against the stone walls, and the men jeered. The lighthouse keeper turned and ran, falling up the steps, pushing against the cold stone walls to stay upright and centered. He felt their hands grasping at his heels. If he could get to the top of the lighthouse and scramble inside the lamp room, he might be safe. He could barricade the hatch and throw himself upon it, then wait until they grew bored or sobered up. At the thirteenth step, he faltered and fell hard on the stairs. In that dim expanse, untouched by the beacon's light, as he groaned in pain and anguish, they beat him with their belts, boots, and fists until his heart stopped and his mouth fell silent. The last of his moans echoed through the lighthouse, and then all they could hear was the waves on the shore. The two soldiers had killed a man, but not an enemy, not an American with whom they were still technically at war, but a subject of the crown. They tried to console themselves. He was a known bootlegger, selling his beer and spirits to whoever could afford it. There were even rumors that he was a smuggler, bringing boatloads of barrels across the lake from New York. The treacherous dog could have been doing business with the enemy. But that was all conjecture, and they knew it. The fact was, he was the keeper of the light at Gibraltar Point, assigned by the lieutenant governor himself. He had kept the beacon lit as American forces shattered the shoreline with cannon fire and razed the town of York. He never fled, never fumbled. He kept that light burning for all those British ships in the harbor, and now he lay dead and broken in the shadow of that lighthouse. Soon the sun would rise, the fog would lift, the night watch would be over, and the beacon's light would burn out. By nightfall, if that beacon was not lit, people would come and see what they had done. They knew they had to destroy the evidence of their crime and get back to the blockhouse before dawn. They found an axe by the cabin door, dragged the keeper's body outside, and chopped it to pieces. They spent the rest of the night scattering the remains in shallow graves around the island, cursing the hardness of the frozen ground. They saved the skull for last, burying it beneath the thin ice and half-frozen mud of a small lagoon 500 feet west of the lighthouse. The soldiers returned to their post and never uttered a word of what happened. When the sun went down the following evening and the lighthouse stayed dark, it seemed to the world that Rattlemuller had simply disappeared. Though foul play was suspected, the most vital evidence of a murder, the body, was missing. His killers were never brought to justice, and no trace of Rattlemuller was ever found. 
Until, perhaps, that cold autumn day when the fourth lighthouse keeper, inspired by the folklore he had heard his entire life, made a grisly discovery. A fragment of a jawbone, 500 feet west of the lighthouse and four feet deep in the earth. Part 3. The Pieces of a Story You've just heard my version of two connected legends that have been part of Toronto's oral history for the past 200 years. Like many popular campfire stories, the details can differ depending on the storyteller. Some say that Rattlemuller drew the ire of the drunken soldiers by simply noticing their inebriation and cutting them off, while others maintain he was a cheat who watered down his bootlegged whiskey or beer and was killed for his deception. In some accounts, he's beaten with belts, in others, firewood. Still others say he was killed with a hatchet, shot, stabbed to death with bayonets, or chased or dragged to the top of the lighthouse and thrown over the railing. No matter how his death occurs, the ending is almost always the same. His body was dismembered, his remains were scattered throughout the island to hide the evidence, and his killers escaped conviction. The ghost stories are less detailed, but generally include phantom footsteps and moans, floating balls of light, mysterious bangs from inside the locked lighthouse, the beacon glowing when it should be dark, and a ghostly, sometimes armless figure standing at the top of the lighthouse or wandering the grounds in search of its lost limbs. Some writers and storytellers have claimed that the lighthouse keepers who came after Rattlemuller complained of all those things and more, disembodied voices, doors creaking open, haunted dreams. But from what I can tell, no one has actually gone on record as having seen a ghost. But the legends are intriguing, and those who have heard them can't help but wonder. As thousands flock to the Toronto Islands, to the yacht clubs, parks, and gardens, if beneath the shadows of cyclists, pedestrians, and disc golfers, the mortal remains of the first lighthouse keeper of Gibraltar Point are still waiting to be discovered. Perhaps then the hauntings will stop, and the keeper's restless spirit will finally find its way toward the light. Though the lighthouse isn't as iconic as, say, Winnipeg's Fort Garry Hotel or Niagara's Screaming Tunnel, it's featured in multiple lists of Canada's top haunted places, thanks in part to its close proximity to the nation's largest city. For generations, Toronto school kids have taken field trips to the lighthouse to learn about the early days of the colony of Upper Canada. More often than not, they commit just two key lessons to memory. One, that watered-down alcohol will freeze very easily, and two, that the oldest existing lighthouse on the Great Lakes might be haunted. Now that second lesson is actually reinforced by an historical marker that was placed next to the lighthouse door back in the 1950s, when it was officially decommissioned. They kind of spring it on you, too. The plaque begins rather modestly, as you might expect. The lighthouse was one of the earliest on the Great Lakes. It was built in 1808. It has a hexagonal structure. It was originally 52 feet tall, but was expanded in 1832 to 82 feet tall. And oh, by the way, after its first keeper mysteriously disappeared, part of a human skeleton was found nearby, and that enhanced its already established reputation as a haunted building. That's pretty provocative for an historical marker, a medium that usually deals with dry facts, so it's no surprise that it was a somewhat controversial inclusion. 
According to Adam Bunch, author of the Toronto Book of the Dead, the Metro Toronto Parks Committee was less than thrilled with the text, with councillors complaining that it would scare people and foil their efforts to make the historic site attractive to children. One councillor complained that the story was nothing more than a myth and didn't deserve to be included. But it's not as simple as that. The story of Gibraltar Point's first lighthouse keeper is an interesting one, and it's steeped in legend, so it's worth taking a closer look, not just for the history, but for the insight it provides on how that history can be transformed into legend and influenced by memory, culture, and tourism. If you really dig into the history and the legend of the lighthouse, you're essentially trying to solve three different mysteries. Was Rydlmuller really murdered? If so, what happened to his remains? And how did one unfortunate event grow to become a grisly and ghostly legend? Let's get into it. John Paul Rademuller was a real person. He was born in Germany, and he served as Gibraltar Point's first lighthouse keeper, beginning with his official appointment on July 24, 1809, and ending with his mysterious death on January 2, 1815. Now, from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, that was pretty much all we knew. Much of the details about his character and his life were forgotten over time. Even his name was mysterious, printed in half a dozen ways in a variety of publications. The first recorded version of the legend surrounding his death was written around 1908 by John Ross Robertson, a Canadian reporter, publisher, and politician. And the way he writes about it suggests that it was a well-known legend even then. According to Robertson's book, Landmarks of Toronto, the story of the death of Gibraltar Point's first lighthouse keeper, whom he called Miller or Muller, goes something like this, quote, Muller, true to the customs of his fatherland, always liked a glass of beer, and by way of improving his stipend as lighthouse keeper, he always kept a spare keg on hand for his friends. It is understood that the beer was obtained from a brewery near Lewiston, New York. The soldiers stationed nearby often rowed down Blockhouse Bay in small boats to visit the lighthouse keeper, and when they could not get a boat, they walked to the point. Muller always made them feel welcome. But one day, a group of three who had been drinking in York came over from the town and called on Muller to produce his beer keg. This he readily did, and when he saw that his military friends were having more than was good for them, he refused further supply. The refusal ended in a fight, and the fight ended in the death of Muller, for the soldiers finally beat him to death with their belts and with a stick that was convenient." End quote. It's interesting to note that Robertson didn't believe this legend, writing that he was, quote, inclined to think it is made out of whole cloth, end quote, or in other words, a complete fabrication. A talented researcher and reporter, Robertson couldn't find any record of a murder trial involving a soldier between 1808 and 1817, nor could he find any reference to the alleged murder in any newspaper, document, or manuscript from the time. But the legend came from somewhere, and it persisted, passed down from generation to generation, and evidently, from lighthouse keeper to lighthouse keeper. As part of his research, Robertson spoke to a man named George Dernan, who was the fourth keeper at Gibraltar Point, a position he inherited from his father. George grew up hearing the legend, including a key detail. George told Robertson, quote, it was always claimed that Rydlmuller was buried west of the lighthouse, near the lagoon at the south end of Blockhouse Bay, end quote. 
So, one day in 1893, George, his dad James, and his uncle Joe ventured to that spot and began to dig. 400 feet later, they found part of a human male's jawbone, along with scattered fragments of a coffin. As you might imagine, this revelation was a bit of a bombshell. In the minds of many, this jawbone was the missing piece of evidence that proved that the legend was true. And the legendary find made its way into countless books, ghost stories, and, of course, the historical marker on the side of the lighthouse. Now, this is a good place to stop and regroup, because this is one of the first examples of how the legend we know today differs from the legend back then. Today, we're told that Rattlemuller's body was chopped to bits and scattered throughout the island so that his body would never be found. But Robertson doesn't say anything about that. What's more, there's no mention that his body ever went missing. In fact, quite the opposite. Remember that quote, it was always maintained he was buried west of the lighthouse. The location of Rattlemuller's body was, at least early on, part of the legend. Then there's the fact that bits of coffin were found alongside the remains. Now that detail is often omitted in modern retellings because it clashes with the rest of the story. If two cold-blooded killers murdered a man, then chopped him to pieces to hide the evidence of their crime, why would they build him a coffin? And would they have built just one, or several, for each body part and each grave? And what did they do with all the blood that would have been left behind? Now, there's always the chance that the Durnans exhumed someone else entirely, who just happened to be buried in that legendary spot. In fact, some suggest that the island may have been used as a graveyard by indigenous people. But it seems more likely that Rademuller's body was buried where the legend says he was buried, and the location, along with the story, was passed down to each subsequent lighthouse keeper so they would know to avoid the area and be respectful of a fellow keeper's final resting place. Okay, so all that stuff about the soldiers chopping up and hiding a body might be a less reliable, more modern addition to the legend. But if so, where did it come from? And even if we remove that element, we're still left with an unsolved murder. Who killed Rademuller, and why? Though Robertson couldn't find any record of Rademuller's alleged murder, it turns out that the story did make it to the pages of at least one newspaper. On January 14, 1815, a tiny blink-and-you'll-miss-it announcement appeared in the York Gazette to announce that J.P. Rademuller, the keeper of the lighthouse on Gibraltar Point, had died on January 2nd. What was the cause? Quote, There is every moral proof of his having been murdered. End quote. Exactly what that proof was, or exactly who committed what the paper called the most barbarous and inhuman crime, isn't mentioned. The only clue we get is the final line of the announcement, which reads, quote, The parties last with him are the supposed perpetrators and are imprisoned. End quote. That news was small comfort, because 91 days later, the Gazette gave the people of York an update in the form of one simple sentence quote, No conviction of the supposed murderers of the late J.P. Rattlemuller. It's not much. But these brief notes, which precede two centuries of storytelling, confirm the sudden death and the alleged murder, demonstrating that, like most legends that have stood the test of time, there was at least some truth to the story. 
Though the oddly light press coverage might suggest that the citizens of York weren't too concerned about the murder, the lack of a conviction must have had at least some impact on the town, if the popularity and longevity of the legend is any indication. The colony was still officially at war with the Americans, and having just lived through the Battle of York, when much of the town had been razed to the ground, tensions were probably high. Then, out of nowhere, the keeper of the lighthouse, the building that keeps the harbor safe, is seemingly murdered, not by the enemy, but by the soldiers who are supposed to keep them safe. The rumor is that it's an open and shut case. Of course they did it. The local newspapers assured them that there was every moral proof, and yet there was no conviction. We can imagine people wondering how that could be, and then, possibly, embracing a timeless myth that is still repeated today. You can't have a murder without a body. Maybe that was the reason they went free. There might have been every moral proof, but perhaps the most vital physical proof, the corpse, was missing. There's one more thing I want to mention about these articles, and it's pure speculation on my part. I wonder if an accidental misreading of one crucial word helped to create, or at least perpetuate, the myth that Radomulu's body was never found. It all has to do with that last line of the obituary from January 14, 1815. Quote, The parties last with him are the supposed perpetrators and are imprisoned. End quote. Now that's what the paper said, I've seen the article, but I found at least four books and a handful of websites which quote that same line as, the parties lost with him are the proposed perpetrators and are imprisoned. Now that one little error, changing last to lost, can make a big difference, especially if you're looking for proof that Radomuller's body was never found. Suddenly we have all these questions. As author Edward Butts muses in his book Murder, Twelve True Stories of Homicide in Canada, quote, What is meant by the parties lost with him? Could it mean that Radomuller and the soldiers were first reported missing? That after the murder, the soldiers had tried to run? Could that be the reason that twelve days passed before news of the murder appeared in the Gazette? End quote. As it turns out, no, it was just a misreading. I'm not sure where it came from or how far back it goes, but it's interesting to see how one little word can complicate interpretations and contribute to the confusion. Though the York Gazette never suggested that the suspects were soldiers, it turns out that part of the legend was true as well. The basic details were eventually found in old court minute books, but it's the outstanding detective work of historian and researcher Eamon O'Keefe that gives us the most in-depth look at the alleged crime and subsequent trial. According to O'Keefe's research, two men named John Blumen and John Henry were ultimately collared for the crime. Both were Irish-born, members of the Glengarry Light Infantry, and probably stationed at the blockhouse near Gibraltar Point at the time of Radomuller's death. They were tried for his murder on March 31, 1815, and pled not guilty. The prosecution called seven witnesses, including a coroner, further evidence that suggests Radomuller's body was never missing, and three or four other soldiers. We have no record of what transpired at the trial, but we do know that the two men were acquitted, and according to O'Keefe, faded into history. We'll likely never know exactly why Blumen and Henry were implicated in the crime, 
but based on the legend, we can probably assume that alcohol was involved. Drinking was pretty common amongst the soldiers, especially during the long, dark, cold nights of winter when a little bit of warmth from a bottle of whiskey would be welcome company. Historian Sally Gibson tells us that the 9th century at Fort York was posted later than usual on payday because, quote, the men were expected to get drunk and have trouble finding their way back to the fort, end quote. Now, if that kind of expectation existed at the fort, we can only imagine what little was expected of the soldiers at the blockhouse. If the legends are true, and Rydlmuller was either making or smuggling in alcohol, it makes sense that they would look to him to get their fix. And that would put him in a potentially lucrative and potentially dangerous situation. The earliest legends say that the lighthouse keeper shipped kegs of beer across the lake from a brewery in Lewiston, New York, but a lot of historians are skeptical about that. Trying to smuggle alcohol across a border during wartime is a bit crazy, especially when that border is being patrolled by British and American ships of war. It's much more likely, they say, that he made his own beer, a detail that a few Toronto breweries have capitalized on with brews like Long Slice's The Haunting of Gibraltar Point Red Ale and Stonehooker's Gibraltar Point Imperial Stout. These stories tell us that violence erupted after the soldiers came by for a drink, and Radomuller either refused to serve them or cut them off, deciding they were getting too drunk, as if he were a bartender trying to keep his smart serve certification. In other stories, Radomuller is far less noble, distilling his own hard liquor and then watering it down to turn a greater profit, a choice that proves fatal when the supposedly high-proof hooch freezes in cold weather. Now, I'm no expert, but from what I understand, it would have been far easier and cheaper for Rattelmuller to make his own bathtub gin instead of what stories call a German-style beer. So perhaps this version has some legs. It also works with the legends that say the soldiers were after his money rather than his alcohol, perhaps tapping into that Prohibition-era idea that rum runners and bootleggers were all made fabulously wealthy by trading in vice. Most of these legends cast Rattelmuller in an unflattering light, a consequence of the storyteller's desire to tell a good tale, combined with the influence of the time and the setting, and the fact that, for a long time, very little was known about the man. But that all changed when a letter, written in his own hand, was discovered in the archives of the public library in Vaughan, Ontario. Part 4. Servant of Princes, Keeper of Light over the years, John Rattelmuller has been portrayed according to the whims of the storyteller, as a character influenced by the themes and motifs found in their story. Rattelmuller lived isolated and alone, in the shadow of a lighthouse far away from town, so he must have been, to quote some storytellers, solitary, quiet, inoffensive, and rather morose. But he was also a man who loved a good beer and loved to drink with his friends, so he was friendly, generous, and gregarious. And don't forget that he was a bootlegger who smuggled in whiskey and watered down his product, so he was unscrupulous, corrupt, rough, and quick to anger. And as a lighthouse ghost, he must have loved his work. He must have cherished the lighthouse as the only place he could feel comfortable, and he must have felt a profound sense of duty to stay nearby. The point is, as the prerequisite body for an unsolved murder mystery and a ghost story, Rattelmuller was whoever the storyteller needed him to be. 
But who was he really? Well, as luck would have it, we now have a far deeper understanding of Toronto's first lighthouse keeper thanks to the man himself. In the early 1800s, John petitioned the government in the hope of procuring some land, and provided an autobiographical summary to justify his request. The letter paints a picture of a well-educated, polite, and highly motivated individual, in stark contrast to what we might expect from a legendary bootlegger and lonely lighthouse keeper. Before he became the first keeper of the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse, John Radlmuller served as a personal attendant to Prince William Henry, Duke of Gloucester, and later to Prince Edward Augustus, Duke of Kent. Yes, that Prince Edward, the namesake of Prince Edward Island and the father of Queen Victoria. As a bedroom servant and master of luggage for the royal family, John must have enjoyed a comfortable living, but what he really wanted was to farm. He actually tried to return to his homeland of Bavaria and start a farm there, but the land was being torn apart by the French Revolutionary Wars, so he eventually set his sights on Nova Scotia and then Upper Canada. After a few false starts, courtesy of Prince Edward and Sir John Wentworth, the governor of Nova Scotia, John finally left his role as servant and arrived in York, Upper Canada, on New Year's Day in 1804. Despite being a stranger in a strange land, with no introductory papers from the governor, he proved to be exceptionally resourceful and eventually established a school in Markham where he taught English to other German settlers. By the end of the year, he was recognized as the local government's official interpreter for all of that region's German settlers. Because he was a loyal servant for so many years, the prince had initially promised to help him acquire around 1,000 acres of land near Halifax. But John had heard that the land near York was much better for farming. Unfortunately, when he arrived, he learned that all of the good, workable land was already taken, except, of course, for the land considered Crown Reserve. He wrote the government, described his years of service to the Crown, the promise that Prince Edward had made, and asked to be granted just a small amount of Crown land to call his own. He was swiftly denied. He tried again four years later, but received the same answer, along with a new job offer, to be the first keeper of the community's new lighthouse under Gibraltar Point. It was an important position, one that needed a competent and reliable person, and John was the perfect fit. He took the role in 1809. In 1810, he was joined by his new wife Magdalena, and by the end of that year, little baby Arabella was born. Far from being a morose loner or reckless bootlegger, it seems that John was a well-educated, polite, and likable guy. The York Gazette said he had, quote, an inoffensive and benevolent character, end quote, and each prince or politician who employed him was sorry to see him go. It's just a bit sad that a guy who only ever wanted to farm his own land wound up on a government-owned sandy peninsula in a stone tower at the edge of a lake. But there is a glimmer of happiness to the story. We don't know the whereabouts of Magdalena or Arabella at the time of John's death. We can assume they were probably on the mainland because the war was still officially on. But we do know, thanks to Eamon O'Keefe's research, that they at least managed to fulfill John's dream and become landowners. In 1816, 200 acres of land in Reach Township, about 70 kilometers northeast of present-day Toronto, was secured in trust for Little Arabella. 
It was the long overdue fulfillment of the promise that Prince Edward had made to John so many years earlier. And it's proof that government bureaucracy can, in fact, finally come through for you long after you're dead. Part 5. Haunted History So is the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse haunted? Well, in the words of one of the volunteers who has watched over the structure, it is if you want it to be. Even if you don't believe in the supernatural, you can't deny that something tragic occurred there long ago, and that event, whether murder or simple accident, still haunts the grounds some two centuries later. The story itself is like a ghost, intangible, transitional. It shapes our experience of the place as much as we shape it. Similar to how the moon's reflection can be a phantom light from the beacon, or how the sound of cooing pigeons and howling wind can be the ghostly moan of a restless spirit, in the legends, a fragment of a jawbone can transform over the years into a complete skull and then an entire skeleton, and a well-respected family man and former royal servant can transform into a morose and solitary bootlegger who ripped off his customers and paid the ultimate price. Around 1982, a parks employee named Joe Padovani was rebuilding part of the lighthouse stairs when he and his co-worker discovered an opening to a long, cylindrical shaft that led to a small room. Venturing inside, they found a candlestick holder and a human femur, the bone that connects the knee to the hip. They phoned the superintendent and were told to stop their work, lock the door, and meet him and the police at the site the next morning. They did as they were told, but the next day, when they stepped back inside the lighthouse with the police following close behind, the room was empty. The candlestick holder and the bone were gone. In 1984, two psychics visited the lighthouse and, according to author Robert Colombo, quote, confirmed the truth of the oft-told tale, end quote. In 1995, another psychic, identified only as Parkdale's Eloise Y, investigated the reportedly haunted structure as part of a segment for Off the Hook, a children's TV show produced by TV Ontario. Her experience and conclusions, written in her own words and found in Columbo's book True Canadian Ghost Stories, differed from the others. She felt that she had made contact with John, and sensed a feeling of despondency, sadness, and anger about his job. She concluded that John hadn't been murdered by cold-blooded soldiers, but had been wounded in a drunken fight that broke out over a card game played at the top of the lighthouse. He tried to flee, but fell down the stairs, and was left for dead by his former friends. In a drunken stupor, he eventually made his way to a canal near the lake and was spirited away by unknown people who tried, unsuccessfully, to nurse him back to health. Unfortunately, he never recovered, and his former friends made up the story of his mysterious disappearance to avoid any accusations of guilt. Eloise felt sad for John, but was elated when, at the end of her visit, he showed himself to her manifesting his image on the interior of the stone wall, halfway up the tower. He was, quote, handsome and seasoned, and in his very best, end quote. He had, she said, a face like Gregory Peck. The stories keep coming. Journalists have slept overnight in the tower, hoping for a good story. Paranormal investigators have stalked the lighthouse grounds, looking for evidence of an afterlife. 
TV shows have played fast and loose with the legends and the facts in search for ratings. There's even the story of one well-meaning man who brought salt to the lighthouse with a plan to perform an exorcism. There are also less shocking legends. Some that say that Rademuller fell down the stairs, was somehow locked out of his home and the lighthouse, and died of frostbite. Or he drunkenly stumbled off the top of the tower and fell to his death. All of these stories and experiences combine with the original mystery to add to the energy and mystique of the place. They make the legend a living thing. And then there's the simple fact that it's a lighthouse, an icon of isolation, a relic of the past, associated with dark nights, dangerous waters, and the liminal edges of a civilization. It's the perfect setting for a ghost story, especially one that helps us to explore our fears of being alone, replaced, and forgotten. Stories like this remind us that these places in our community are part of the hidden history of countless lives that have come before, of people who lived, loved, and died in the same places that we see and pass by every day. The armless phantom of a tortured soul might not be wandering Gibraltar Point, and it's unlikely that a tourist on the island will accidentally dig up a lost limb anytime soon. But the spirit of the first lighthouse keeper, or indeed of any other keeper, could still be tethered to that strange, out-of-the-way place they once called home. In a 2014 interview with the Toronto Sun, the longtime supervisor of the Toronto Islands, Warren Hoselton, admitted that he always skips over the 13th step whenever he climbs the lighthouse. He also makes sure to bang on each stone as he ascends, just in case some bootlegger's cash falls out from a long-forgotten hiding place. Because that's the thing with these legends. You can never really be sure what's fact and what's fiction. And that sense of the unknown is what keeps these stories alive, and what keeps us coming back for more. That's it for this episode. I'll be back on December 8th to bring you a whole new season of stories. Make sure you follow the podcast for all the updates and new episodes. Until then, thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it, and remember to mind where you step. Pieces of our haunted history might be just under your feet. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Braden Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas, donations, and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.